All right, good morning. <clears throat> I do want to invite you back tonight uh, at 5 o'clock. Yure uh, and the kids always do a good job with the Christmas program. It's always a lot of fun, and maybe we'll learn something tonight. It's a good time to bring grandparents and aunts and uncles and all the people that want pictures of all the kids. So we expect a full house tonight um, and lots of guests. So we welcome you back here at 5. Also, I want to encourage you to consider giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. If you're not a lifelong Baptist, you may not even know what that is. Uh, Lottie Moon was a young woman who went to China as a foreign missionary at age 20. And this was in the 19th century. It was like 1840 or something like that. And spent decades there serving. And so Baptists decided that um, they would honor her name by naming the annual Christmas offering after her. So Lottie Moon is actually a person. And so we take up this offering every year in December. And every cent that comes in goes directly to foreign missionaries uh, through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So if you'd like to give to that, you can. Isaiah has put a, uh, one of those codes in the bulletin for you to scan, and that goes straight to uh, the Lottie Moon website where you can give directly there. Or as usual, you can give through the church. Just make sure you let us know that that's for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And we'll be taking that up through the entire month of December. We missed last week just because I forgot. Uh, so we'll get it the rest of this month and send that off to support those who are serving by sharing the gospel in other countries. Okay? So today, we're going to take just a short time. Uh, this will be a pretty short message. We're in Romans chapter 5 still, and we're going to look at verse 21, and we're probably going to look at verse 21 next week also. Sometimes the topics brought up in these verses lend themselves to a topical study where we stop basically going word by word through the passage, and we just stop and we dwell on this topic for a little bit. And that's what I want to do today. We'll touch on some of the truths from chapter or verse 21, but even beyond that, we're going to look at some truths related to the concept of God's grace. So this morning, I want to read to you, I don't even know if I put both verses up on the screen, but I'm going to read verse 20 and verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along there. If not, I know at least verse 21 will be on the screen behind me. So this is Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? So, we're going to look primarily at verse 21, but we'll mention 20 a few times as we go through this. You know, there are times in life when we naturally inquire or examine someone else's motives. And I think it's sometimes a good thing that we be aware of them, that we... Um, analyze them and know what's going on. We know that a person um, can do something that may turn out badly, but we know that they had great <laughs> motives. Their intentions were commendable, and so we'll sometimes overlook those mistakes. And by contrast, we know of some people who will do something good, 
But we'll discount that act maybe as worthy because it was only done to enhance their reputation or to outdo someone else. So motives do come into play as we evaluate the world around us. Now, we've been talking about the grace of God for the last few weeks. And so maybe, just maybe at some point, some of you may have begun to ask about God's motives for his grace. We've seen that God operates by grace in saving men and women. In fact, if he did not, no one would be saved. But you may now want to know whether the Bible reveals a reason for God's grace. Are there motives behind it? I hesitate to even say this sentence. Why has God functioned in this manner? Because most of the questions, if not the vast majority of questions that I get from church members, from anyone, is why. Why did God do this or why did God do that? Oftentimes we understand the what. We know what he did, but we have trouble with the why. So today we're going to look at one of those why questions. Why is God functioning in this manner by displaying his grace in this way? So I think there, it's a valid question. Some of you, may it may have come to you out of the blue, but others, even if not, Today, I'm going to guide you to see why it's valid for two reasons. We've looked at verse 20 and verse 21, and we've looked at the contrast between the law of God and the grace of God. The first verse gives us a motive for the entry of the law. It says in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And when we studied that verse, we saw that increasing the trespass meant these three things. Uh, the law increased sin by increasing our knowledge of it, that is, by defining it for us, which is good. The law increased sin by convicting us of sin, thus showing it to be an offense against God, which is also good for us to know. And then third, that the law provoked even more sin in us by uncovering sin's true nature in us. And that's also good for us to know. And all of this opened up the way to God's grace. So if God's motives for giving the law are at least suggested in this passage, and the verse contains a contrast between the law and grace, as we've seen, then what about the motivation for that underlying grace? Where is it? The very fact that the first half of the contrast involves God's motives for giving the law should cause us to look maybe even for his motives and working in grace. But then also, in addition to just what you might think, the text encourages us to search for God's motives. The key word here is so, or so that. You'll see that depending on which English translation you're reading from, it occurs three times in verses 20 and 21. The first time is in reference to the law. The law was added so that 
the trespass might increase. The second and third time that we see this term is in reference to grace. In the first case, it compares God's grace to sin or to the law. In the second, it links grace to its great accomplishments. It says, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's from the New International Version. In the Greek text, the point is even clearer. Because after having stated in verse 20 that grace superabounded, remember we talked about that in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's like super or hyper abounding. Remember? After saying that, Paul inserts a Greek word and it's hina. And it's translated as in order that. In the English Standard Version, right after grace abounded all the more, the next word is so that. So that's what it means. Hina means so that or in order that. And that phrase thereby marks off what is to follow as an explanation of why God has been gracious. Does that make sense? Grace abounded so that this is why he did it. And then we read what follows. So, lots of commentators have written on this. Perhaps my favorite throughout this whole study of chapter 5 has been Donald Barnhouse. He lists a few reasons, motives for God's grace. We're going to cover a few of those. Uh, Not all. He wrote a lot about it, and we'd be here all day. But the first motive that he says is shown for this super abounding grace of God is actually shown in the text of verse 21. And that is that it says that God acted in grace leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here he's referring to redeeming all men and women by grace. And so it is a statement that one reason why God acts in grace Maybe his initial reason is that he might do us good. That he might do us good. Here's another verse that says exactly the same thing, and it's a very familiar verse. It's in Jesus' own words, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, there's that word hina again, so that, or in order that, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So just like in Romans 5, 21, we see that same word, that same clause. In order that, and then in John 3, 16, the purposes that follow are a little different in that it is is expressed both negatively and positively. The negative statement is that we should not perish. And then the positive statement is that we should have eternal life. It means that God is good. I really need you to remember that. It's wonderful that God is good. If God was not good, there would be no hope for us. 
And I say it's important for you to remember that just because I've taught this. I don't remember if it's been in sermons or if it was during my days teaching Sunday school, but I used to teach it repeatedly. That Whenever you encounter any kind of difficulty in your life, in the life of a loved one, someone gets sick, someone dies, you or someone loses their job, some other traumatic event occurs in your life, chances are your doubt and your questioning is going to boil down to two things. Either God is not good or God is not powerful enough to fix this evil. And most of us innately know that God is powerful. That's hard for us to deny. It's, it's difficult for us to say God was not powerful enough to have stopped this from happening because we have seen just in the pages of the Bible vast demonstrations of incredible power. So we usually land on he is not good. He does not love me. And that will be a spiral down into all types of depression and doubt. And so it's crucial that we remember that God is good. He works through his grace to do us good. The sinner who comes to Christ discovers this motive for grace, the ultimate good that God does for us. Because then he can say, God doesn't want me to perish. God wants me to have everlasting life. And God has done something about it. How wonderful it is that he doesn't want me to perish because I deserve to perish. How wonderful that God wants me to have eternal life when I deserve death. God is good. And that's one reason, one motive behind his working through grace is to do us good. But there's more. The second motive flows out of the first that if God is gracious to us because it is good, it is natural that through his grace, we in turn might do good. The key text here is in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Very familiar passage. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's been pointed out by pretty much every preacher that's preached on these or every commentator who's written about these verses. That there's a striking repetition of the word works in verses 9 and 10. The first mention of the work of works is negative. In verse 9, it says it's not a result of works. And that is our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not the result of our works. Otherwise, it would be possible for a person to boast about his salvation being because of his works, maybe to someone who hasn't been saved. It would be grounds for boasting both here on earth and in heaven. So in verse 9, it is utterly repudiated that our works contribute in any way to our justification. 
Paul makes that clear. In fact, if you believe that your good works have anything to do with your justification, you're probably not justified. You're still in your sin, and therefore you're not saved. Your salvation is not by your works. It is by grace through faith. But on the other hand, no sooner had he said that, but in verse 10, he says that he has created us precisely for good works. In verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is said with very strong language. We are created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So because of that strong language, I think we are correct in saying that if there are no good works, then that person is not justified. Well, that sounds very confusing. How can you say on the one hand that we are not justified by works and that if we think we are, then we're, we're lost? But on the other hand, you say that we must have good works and that if we don't have them, we're lost. Well, I think this problem vanishes as soon as we realize that the good works that Christians are called upon to do are the result of God's prior working in them. It's why in verse 10, Paul prefaces his demand for good works by saying, we are his workmanship. And why later in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says this in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works graciously in us so that we could do good. Let me say it another way. One reason why God has saved us by grace, regardless of any merit on our own part, is so that we might be enabled to be gracious to others. Isn't that another way of stating to do good works? To be gracious to others regardless of any merit on their part. We are able to do good to others the same way God has done good to us in grace. I mean, I think this is important because this is the only kind of good works that are compelling and that are pleasing to God. What's wrong with so much of the good works today is that they are done for selfish reasons. To see what people can get out of it for themselves, maybe a man will be helpful to those who can help him advance up the career ladder. Or a woman who will also do good works to others only to enhance her own reputation. What really advances goodness and grace is when someone does good simply to do it out of love for others with no hidden self-serving motive, such as getting something for oneself. And that is why we've learned 
from God, through him working in us graciously, how we can be agents for good in the world around us. So a third motive, again in Ephesians, but now in chapter 3, this is one you may not have thought of. In chapter 3, God, has been, God through Paul has been teaching about how he saves people from all nations, men, women, from all walks of life, from all ethnic backgrounds, and he's brought them together into one new body, which is the church. And he's overcoming very formidable barriers that existed to this up until this point. And then he says this, Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places include the fallen angels. Have you thought about that? Let me read you the verse again. So that through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you ever stop to wonder what is Fairway Baptist Church making known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Is it the manifold wisdom of God or is it something else? This raises the whole subject of God's motivation to a cosmic level beyond merely human beings. Here's how Donald Barnhouse describes it. He says, when Lucifer and the angels were created, power was given to them on various levels. But Lucifer became Satan, and many of the angelic beings, the principalities and powers, followed him in his rebellion. They thought they had sufficient wisdom to govern and to carry on the administration of creation without recourse to the authority and wisdom of God. The universe was engulfed. Chaos came into the world. And sin's erosion became manifest to the uttermost part of creation. In the fullness of time, God revealed his plan of salvation. Christ would go down, down to the cross. Because of his death, a great number of sinners would be called out of the world and form the true church, the organism, not the organization. God would then exhibit these believers before the hosts of Satan as a demonstration of the true method of government and administration. Instead of seeing exaltation within themselves, all who have been redeemed recognize that there is no power within themselves. All that they accomplish is through the total reliance upon the wisdom and power of God. This in the very place where powerful and wise beings rebelled in their imagined self-sufficiency, God took from men, greatly inferior to angels, a company which accomplishes what the latter could never accomplish. The fallen angels sought to accomplish all by independence. We accomplish by total dependence. They followed Lucifer, who said in Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend. I will exalt my throne. I will be like the Most High. 
we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. There is wisdom here that the world will never understand. For the world says, you've got to look out for number one. Yet the way of the cross, not the way of self-seeking and self-advancement, is what overcomes evil and leads to true happiness. We, the church, manifest this wisdom of God to those who tried other ways to find happiness, those fallen beings. I want to look at one more today before we leave. I think this is the last one. It's in Ephesians as well, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Well, this brings us back to Romans. Because this exhibiting of grace in believers is one of the elements involved in the reign of grace that we'll look at next week in verse 21. There's a man who wrote a book called Grace. The name of the man is Lewis Berry Chafer. And he had some thoughts on this motivation by God. He said, God's supreme motive is nothing less than his purpose to demonstrate before all intelligences, principalities and powers, celestial beings and terrestrial beings, the exceeding riches of his grace. This God will do by means of that gracious thing which he does through Christ Jesus. All intelligences will know the depth of sin and the hopeless estate of the lost. They will, in turn, behold men redeemed and saved from that estate, appearing in the highest glory like Christ. This transformation will measure and demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace. The supreme purpose of God is to be realized through the salvation of men by grace alone. So fully does that supreme purpose now dominate the divine undertakings in the universe that everything in heaven and in the earth is contributing solely to that end. You know, we often speak of a Christian worldview. Have you heard that term before? Well, here is a Christian worldview that is very well defined, namely that history is the field upon which the manifold grace of God in the salvation of sinners is displayed. I mean, you could compare all of history to a play and call it God's grace. The angels are the audience, we are the actors. 
Satan is there. He's there to do everything he can think of to resist God's purposes and to discredit this grace. This drama has unfolded across the centuries. In its early acts, it starred such leading characters as Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, maybe John the Baptist, Peter, Paul. There are other heroes and villains maybe of the Old Testament and the New Testament that you know of that were part of this drama. There have been dominant players. There have been minor walk-ons, strong persons and weaklings, but each has been brought onto the stage to speak the words God has written and all have contributed to the movement of this drama through history. You and I are now actors in this long-running play. Satan is attacking. The angels are all straining forward, looking on. Are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God as you go through the parts, as you speak your lines? What kind of contribution does your life make to the drama known as God's grace? I'm going to ask our praise team to return to the stage. I want to close by going back to Donald Barnhouse because he takes this whole idea of being part of this great drama and describes it very eloquently. He says, I have no doubt that in the ages to come, what we might call billions of years from now, there will be angels who will look at you and me with awe and wonder and say to each other, there are two of the saints. They were on earth in the times of the rebellion. They were dead in trespasses and sin, and they were ungodly sinners. They were the enemies of God. But he loved them when they were like that. Think of that. How marvelous is his love, how great his condescension, how free his grace. He did all that for them. And we'll say to those angels, you were right in giving all glory to God. He is the wonderful one. He is the gracious one. There is none like unto him. And amid all the ceaseless activities of heaven, while we are associated with God himself, with the saints of old, and with those very Bible characters we mentioned, we shall ever point to him as the source of all grace. And we will be in ourselves the exhibit of his exceeding riches of his grace. Let's pray together.